Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 50, The Q&A Show. Roughly one year ago today, a little over a year at this point, I uploaded an audio file to the internet, marking the first step on a project I'd been considering since around 2011. I figured the way my life was going, I was going to be spending a decent chunk of it lecturing, and I might as well take the chance to practice where I could. One year later, the History of Japan podcast has easily become the work I am most proud of. I never expected to have an audience anywhere near the size of the one I do now, and I certainly didn't think I'd pick one up so quickly. So first, on our one-year anniversary, as well as our 50th episode, I wanted to take the time to say thank you. I'm incredibly grateful for the warm reception you've all given me, and I look forward to many more years together. I figured that by way of marking the one-year anniversary of the show, I'd go with what always seems to be my first best instinct, and copy an idea from Mike Duncan's excellent History of Rome podcast. I'd do a Q&A show. So, without further ado, here we go. First, a lot of you have emailed asking for podcast recommendations, so here are a few. You probably aren't surprised to hear the first one is The History of Rome, which was the original inspiration for me to do a show in the first place. The 179 episodes of Mike Duncan's show make up far and away my favorite podcast on the internet. It's supremely well done, and if you've got even the tiniest interest in classical history, I can't recommend it enough. Mr. Duncan also started a new series recently called Revolutions, which is more thematic in approach. I haven't had time to start it yet, I'm ashamed to say, but it looks amazing. There are also a pair of excellent Asian history podcasts out there. The China History Podcast and the Topics in Korean History Podcast. Both are very well done, and they cover material that tends not to get a lot of focus in Western history courses. The China History Podcast has a format pretty close to my own, with a series of outline episodes, followed by more specific topics. Actually, that's where I got the idea for the format of this podcast from, so thank you very much. Topics in Korean History releases a little less often, but it does much larger episodes. David Crowther's History of England is also well worth your time. I've exchanged a few emails with David, and he is an absolute pleasure to talk to. I'm even hoping to do a guest show on the history of England down the line, though that's going to have to wait till my schedule calms down a bit. David does a very good job of dealing with extremely complex history. I used to have a lot of difficulty following English history, but I have a much better grasp of it now, thanks to David's work. Finally, no list would be complete without Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. I'm a firm believer in making history accessible to people, and no one does that better than Dan. He covers a wide range of topics with a skill I've rarely seen. The show releases rarely, but each episode is practically an audiobook. They average around three to four hours apiece. Next up, a few of you have asked me to talk about yokai. If you're not aware, they're essentially folkloric Japanese monsters. They're sometimes referred to as mononoke, yes, as in Princess Mononoke, and they've been a staple of Japanese folklore for a long time. Generally speaking, they're morally neutral. As with most other aspects of pre-modern Japanese folklore and religion, there's no strong moralistic element, as there is with, say, demons in Judeo-Christian religion. I do definitely want to do more on yokai, but there's one big problem. There's no real unified history of them. You see, 
When I put together a show for this podcast, I like to have a narrative to work with, a story I'm trying to tell. There are two reasons for that. First, it's just more interesting than listening to me ramble. And second, it makes it a little easier for people to remember what I'm talking about after they've listened to the show. Once you understand the basic framing of the story, as it were, everything just kind of fits together very logically, and you don't really have to memorize it in quite the same way. The thing is, yokai, because of their very diverse origins, don't really have a narrative that links them together, so I'm not really sure how to do it. With that in mind, here's a little basic background on the yokai. They were always more folklore than religion. After Shinto was systemized by the Japanese government in the 19th century, in an attempt to make it into a state religion, yokai were basically ignored altogether. They experienced a popular resurgence after World War II, when state Shinto broke down and there was more of an interest in revived local traditions. Yokai are a patchwork of different spirits. For example, the Oni, usually translated as demons, can be both violent monsters and protective if hideous beings, somewhat like gargoyles in the West. And the Yukiona, or Snow Woman, is a wandering and pale female spirit who viciously kills travelers on winter nights, variously freezing them or draining their blood vampire style. Another example would be the Kappa, a waterborne trickster similar to the Scottish Kelpie, which must keep a dish of water atop its head full, lest it die while on dry land. One of the best known is the Kitsune, or Fox Spirit, a female spirit which takes the form of a human woman. Sometimes they do so for mischief, deceiving men with their sexual appeal before doing them harm in some way. Others, however, are depicted as far kinder. For example, if y'all remember back to our episode on Onmyodo and Abenoseme, one of the legends that surrounds him was that he inherited magical powers from his kitsune mother. Like I said, I'm not really sure I can do an episode on the history of yokai, because it doesn't really seem like there's a history overall that I could tell. I'm thinking about it, though, and if I come up with something, I'll let you guys know. Meanwhile, I do definitely want to do a Halloween episode of readings from Kwaidan, the first English-language compilation of Japanese supernatural stories, assembled by an American who taught in Japan in the 1890s. So that's definitely on docket, and maybe I'll come up with something down the line. Some of you have asked some questions about what got me interested in Japanese history. Originally, it was Japanese pop culture. Video games, anime, that kind of stuff. I definitely was part of Generation Pokemon, for example. In high school, I started taking the language. Thanks for all the tutoring, Mom. I really appreciate you paying for it. And I started reading books on Japanese history. I got so into it that by the time I was in 12th grade, I actually gave the lectures on Japan for my school's world history courses because I knew it better than most of the teachers. I'm 26 now, so it's been eight years since I graduated from high school, but occasionally when I go back home and visit the history teachers I had there, I was lucky to have some very good ones, I am still introduced as something like that Japan guy. In college, I was lucky enough to have an extremely encouraging and insightful mentor in the form of Dr. William Johnston, a professor at Wesleyan University and a very generous man who encouraged me to pursue my studies from day one. He's absolutely brilliant and he's got some great books out there, so if you're interested in Japanese history, you should definitely keep an eye out for his stuff. I moved to Seattle for my master's degree and was lucky enough to have some very good professors here who encouraged me to pursue my interests. Chief among them are doctors Kenneth Pyle, Marie Antrodogi, and Sadia Pekkanen, and again, I'd like to say thank you to all of them here. 
And in the end, that's what led me to this podcast. Some of you asked me about my career plans and what I'd like to do is teach. Of course, every aspiring PhD says they want a professorship, but I'm enough of a realist to know that the job market isn't really great for that right now. It can be very hard work to find a tenure-track position in academia, and adjuncting, essentially academic contract work, pays terribly and has no job security. The modern academic market is very interesting, and the nature of modern academia is a subject of some debate. I'd be interested in doing an episode of my impressions of it down the line, but I'm not sure that's the kind of thing that would really play here. Maybe I'll write something up and put it on the website. Anyway, I'll probably shoot for teaching at a good high school, or working on U.S.-Japan relations and policy in a think tank or research institute, something that will continue to let me work on my side projects, like this one, in my spare time. Incidentally, if any of you are considering a graduate degree in the social sciences or humanities, especially history, you are all free to drop me a line with any questions you have. Academia and graduate work can be pretty scary, and I'm happy to do what I can to make the process easier. Some of you have asked about topics that I'd like to discuss, but I don't think I could do justice to. Yokai are definitely the biggest one, it's just such a hard topic to encapsulate well. Religion as well is something that I struggle writing about. I like to write episodes that have strong narrative and make a point about a specific subject, but religion is so complex that it's really difficult to do, especially if you're trying not to offend people. After all, religious belief is a very contentious subject in the modern world, which is why it is so important for people to talk about it. Still, I plan to persevere. The Eco-Iki episodes were some of the hardest ones I've ever had to write, but they're some of the ones I'm most proud of, and I'd like to do some more on Japan's other major religious movements. I just finished putting together one on Nichiren, and that'll be coming out sometime next month, so that's a start at least. The history of Japan's women's movements is also something that's very important, but that I don't know very well personally. My own research is focused much more on high politics than on social movements. Japan has had something of a weird relationship with its women, politically speaking. Up until World War II, women's rights were very restricted, but now its constitution is more explicit in its guarantees of sexual equality than any other on the planet that I know of. I'm probably going to be having a guest episode where a friend of mine, another graduate student who works on this subject, will come on and walk us all through it. By the same token, minority issues in Japan are very interesting, dealing with, for example, Koreans resident in Japan, or the issues surrounding the Ainu, the natives of Hokkaido, but it's not really something I know beyond the general level. One way or another, though, I do plan to put out episodes about all these topics. They're very important ones, so if nothing else, I'll just have to get reading. Finally, some of you have asked me about my own research. Like I said, it's focused mainly on high politics, Nowadays, I work more on Japan-China relations than anything else, and I'm hoping to write a dissertation on the Japanese occupation of China in the 1930s. I'll probably be starting research for my dissertation in about a year and a half or so, and I'll start writing sometime around a year after that. So don't be surprised if my dissertation ends up making up a large number of the episodes around that point. It'll be on my mind quite a bit, after all. Getting more to history-related topics, some of you have asked me about Sakamoto Ryoma, specifically why I didn't mention him in the episodes on the Meiji Restoration. 
Well, the decision not to spend much time, or really any time, on Ryoma during the Meiji episodes was actually a pretty hard one for me. One of my closest friends from Japan is from Tokushima Prefecture, and the first time I ever went to Japan, she took me to the Sakamoto Ryoma Museum. It's a fond memory, and as a result, I've always had a fondness in my heart for him. Unfortunately, he's one of those characters whose overall contribution to the Meiji period was important, but not essential to the bare-bones version of the narrative, and there's so much to cover that I made the decision not to include him. It's a shame, because he's really a fascinating character. Here's the speedrun version of his life. Ryoma was born in Kochi in Tosa Prefecture, now Kochi Prefecture, on the island of Shikoku in 1836. Tosa was one of the Tozama, or Outer Domains. Its leadership, much like that of Choshu and Satsuma, was excluded from power in the Tokugawa system, and thus predisposed against it. Ryoma had no love for the Bakufu. He was only 18 when Commodore Perry arrived in Japan, and being a young hothead, he immediately became involved in politics. Unlike, for example, Saigo Takamori, he had little scholarly inclination and was something of the dashing man of action. He joined a militantly xenophobic pro-Sonojoi group called the Kin Nolto. If you'll remember, Sonojoi stands for Revere the Emperor, Expel the Barbarian, and it's a basic summary of their policy planks. He actively participated in planning, though not enacting, assassination attempts against moderate members of Tosa's leadership. Like most Sonojoi advocates, he wanted all foreign influence gone, but he eventually split from the Kin Nolto because he felt its scope was not national enough. The group focused on taking down the Tosa government, not the Tokugawa shogunate as a whole. He ended up fleeing Tosa to pursue national revolution. His own sister actually killed herself out of shame after he left. And then came one of the great curveballs that catapulted him to fame. In his anger, Ryoma decided to assassinate the head of the fledgling naval program of the Tokugawa government, Katsu Kaishu. He jumped Kaishu in 1860, but Kaishu, ever the level thinker, immediately began explaining his actions to Ryoma. Kaishu said he had no love for things foreign in themselves, but merely had a desire to protect the country from foreign predation by making it strong. Apparently he made a good case, because Ryoma was convinced. Having come to kill Kaishu, instead he left as the man's protege. For the next four years, the men worked together to develop a strong navy for Japan. However, Ryoma's anti-Bakufu sentiments meant that the two eventually split in 1864. Ryoma then fled to Satsuma, where his position as a neutral outsider enabled him to help negotiate the alliance between Satsuma and Choshu, which was backed by, among other people, Saigo Takamori. The two domains historically had been very antagonistic, but with the help of him as an impartial mediator, they were able to come together in 1866. Once their alliance began to win victories against the Bakufu, Ryoma's home domain of Tosa jumped to join it, and he was recalled home as an honored advisor to the domain government. However, Ryoma would not live to see the Meiji Restoration completed. In 1867, just one year before the destruction of the Bakufu, he was assassinated while on assignment in Kyoto. Traditionally, the elite pro-Tokugawa force called the Shinsengumi is blamed for killing him, though other pro-Tokugawa groups have been accused. He's an immensely popular figure in Japanese history, both because of the wild trajectory of his life, and because, like Saigo Takamori, he died untainted by the compromises involved in actually governing the country. 
I really want to do a full episode on him. I'm just trying to decide, A, how I want to frame it. I've been considering two options of individual biographies of the Meiji leadership, or one long multi-parter on the restoration from start to finish. And B, when on earth I'm going to have time to reread Albert Craig's excellent but extremely large book, Sakamoto Ryoma and the Meiji Restoration. A few of you have asked me about Japan's national symbols, the Hinomaru, the Japanese flag, and Kimigayo, the national anthem. Taking the Hinomaru first, it's been used as a heraldic emblem for about as long as we've got records. The Shoku Nihongi, one of the earliest Japanese histories, describes one of the Japanese emperors, Emperor Momu, using a flag with a sun on it. Unpoji Temple in modern Yamanashi Prefecture has a flag with a Hinomaru on it from the 11th century, supposedly given to it by Emperor Goreze. Nor was the symbol exclusive to the emperor. For example, Kamakura and Muromachi period texts show samurai with Hinomaru emblazed on their fans and personal banners. However, the symbol of the sun is and always has been more closely associated with the emperor than anyone else, because of the mythology surrounding the imperial line's descent from the sun goddess Amaterasu. The symbol of the sun as a heraldic symbol is, of course, nothing new or unique to Japan. For example, the ancient kingdom of Macedonia, once ruled by Alexander the Great, often was symbolized by a stylized sunburst. The earliest nationally mandated use of the Hinomaru comes from 1854. Japanese ships had to have a way to distinguish themselves from foreign ones by means of what's called a naval ensign, basically a nation-specific flag. The Hinomaru was chosen to be Japan's. Thus, after the Meiji Restoration, the government continued to use the Hinomaru, both because it was already established and because of the aforementioned association between the sun and the emperor. It was adopted in the 1870s for use by the Meiji government, and though there was no law establishing it as the national flag, it continued to be used by default. After the Second World War, use of the Hinomaru was restricted by the American occupation. Permission was needed from the Americans to fly the flag under any circumstances. The national anthem, Kimigayo, also has a pretty distinguished lineage. The name literally means something like, His Majesty's Reign. If you speak modern Japanese, this will probably confuse you, since Kimi is now used as an informal pronoun for you. This is actually a result of a linguistic shift. Kimi originally meant Lord. For example, if you read Genji Monogatari, The Tale of Genji, then Prince Genji is often referred to as Hikaru no Gimi, the Shining Prince. The title of the Emperor was even once Ogimi, or Great Lord. However, over time, the term has shifted to become less formal. This is actually a pretty common phenomenon in Japanese. For example, the term Kisama was once a polite term for you. It literally means something like, Precious Lord. Nowadays, you really do not want to call someone Kisama to their face. Anyway, Kimigayo sounds something like this.
The lyrics are from a poem contained in the Kokin Wakashu, a collection of Japanese poetry dating back to the 900s AD. A literal translation of the lyrics reads as such. May my lord's reign continue for a thousand, for eight thousand generations, until the pebbles grow into boulders lush with moss. The poem was often sung in a variety of contexts. The lord in this instance is not clearly defined, though it did likely refer to the emperor, and thus it was sometimes sung in reference to individual daimyo or to the Tokugawa shoguns. However, though we know it was sung, we do not have music for the original score. The tune as it exists today has gone through some modifications. In 1869, an Irishman serving in the British military named John William Fenton began working with samurai from Satsuma to choose a national anthem, Britain being paid to train Satsuma's navy. Fenton suggested Kimigayo, in part because he thought its message closely resembled that of Britain's own God Save the Queen. He wrote the original tune which was used in the 1870s. However, it never became widely popular among the Meiji leadership, because apparently it was a bit too jazzy, and they thought it lacked the proper degree of solemnity that should be associated with a song about the emperor. The current tune was commissioned in 1880, as the result of a collaboration between three men, Oku Yoshiisa, Hayashi Akimori, and a German musician named Franz Eckert. Unlike the Hinomaru, Kimigayo was never banned during the occupation, and it's been in continual use. However, just like the Hinomaru, for a long time there was no official law, merely a decree from the Imperial Household Administration, the part of the bureaucracy responsible for managing the Imperial family. Both of these things changed in 1999, when a new wave of Japanese nationalism resulted in a law officially establishing Kimigayo as the national anthem, and the Hinomaru as the national flag. That decision, however, has not been without controversy, because both were used during World War II by the Japanese Empire, and are thus associated with Japanese imperialism to a certain degree. Many have vocally critiqued the continued use of these symbols, arguing, for example, that there's a good reason you don't see Germans waving swastikas anymore, because there's really no good association left for it. To my mind, that's not entirely fair. Unlike the swastika, both the Hinomaru and Kimigayo were in use before Japan's descent into fascism. So to tar them completely, I think, is a bit overstating it. It's not a total equivalence. It's also worth noting that the Germans have not changed their national anthem, in fact, since World War II. It is still the Deutschland Lied, also known as Deutschland über alles. They have dropped some of the more objectionable stanzas, but there's not really much of Kimigayo to drop in the first place. Still, Kimigayo and the Hinomaru have a pretty loaded history, and it's unlikely that will go away anytime soon. A few of you have also asked me about my earlier discussion of Noel Perrin's giving up the gun, which, early in the show, I denounced as a bad history book. You've asked me to clarify what specifically I don't like about it. As a quick refresher, Perrin's argument is that the gun threatened Japan's social structure, more specifically the high position of samurai in that structure, since guns allow people who aren't professional fighters to kill those who are, and thus that the Japanese chose to abandon guns altogether during the Edo period in order to defend their way of life. He points to the decline in the production of those firearms in the 1600s to advance his point. Well, the biggest problem with this by far is that Perrin did not speak modern Japanese, 
let alone the mix of classical Chinese and classical Japanese that would have been necessary to do original research on this topic. If you want to do something original, you have to be able to read the language, since it is essential that you are able to deal with the relevant sources yourself. Otherwise, you risk running accidentally into the biases of translators. Thus, had Perrin known the language, he could have accessed one of the number of training manuals from the Edo period, which do describe samurai training with arquebuses, cannons, and other firearms. Or, for that matter, the many woodblock prints depicting the same. Any of those would be enough to prove him wrong. There's also a more fundamental problem with Perrin's argument, which is that it is not logically sound. In short, the threat posed by the arquebus to Japan's social order was constant. Samurai had already ruled the country for 400 years when Westerners first brought guns to Japan's shores. Why then did it take several decades for the manufacture of guns to tail off? The threat to Japan's social order existed from the moment the first Japanese arquebus was produced, so why was the response not immediate? The simple answer is war. War necessitated the purchase or manufacture of guns by local leaders, because if they did not do so, they risked their neighbors doing so and overwhelming them. Once these lords did so, their neighbors had to in turn in order to protect themselves. This, in fancy international relations lingo, is referred to as a security dilemma, and it applies to all forms of armaments, from infantry divisions in the days of Napoleon to nukes in the Cold War. In order to ensure your security against your neighbor, you buy weapons, which causes him to buy more weapons to secure himself against you, which causes you to buy more weapons to stay secure against him, and so on. When the war stopped, the need for new weapons stopped with it. Some of you have asked why the Japanese stopped updating their firearms after the end of the Sengoku period, and the same logic applies in reverse. Militaries, you see, are very expensive, and you don't really get a return on them in the same way you do for investing in agriculture or industry. You build a large military if you need one for security, but if you're already secure, you don't want to keep sinking money into upgrading it in the same way that you would if you were not. This is all the more true for the Tokugawa, who from about 1750 on were in a state of more or less constant fiscal crisis. The decision to stop improving firearms technology was not out of a desire to keep the samurai on top of the system. They were already on top, and they weren't going anywhere anytime soon. It was not an act of will performed by a social class in its own self-defense. It was the result of financial and systemic imperatives which face a nation at war versus a nation at peace. Some blame this mess of an argument on the fact that Perrin was a professor of English, not history, but I don't think that's accurate. All of these points are basic common sense. It helps to have an education in history because you get used to thinking this way and you're paid to do the research, but you don't need to have one to think critically about history. Part of the reason Perrin was so off-base was that he went in already knowing what he wanted to find. Specifically, Perrin was trying to make a point about the voluntary abandonment of technology. Just as the Tokugawa abandoned guns, so the theory went, we too could abandon nuclear weapons as a threat to our civilization. This is a laudable goal, to be sure, but it's very dangerous to do research with your results already in mind. It clouds your ability to think objectively about the point and the evidence, or lack thereof, backing it. In the words of Conrad Totman, a distinguished professor of Japanese history, quote, What the Tokugawa experience really teaches us is a more sobering lesson. Namely, that the elimination of firearms required the prior elimination of the socio-political conditions promoting it. 
If that experience contains a lesson for our day, it is this. If humanity wishes to convert thermonuclear weapons from instruments of destruction into museum pieces, it must first establish the necessary preconditions. How, if at all, can that be done in a multicultural, polycentric world order, and at what cost, to whom? I've also gotten some requests to talk about Japanese aesthetics, that is to say, Japanese art and architecture. I'm not an art historian, but my understanding is that in most forms of Japanese art there are two broad strains of aesthetics. A Japanese one, and an imported Chinese one. Neither one has ever really dominated Japanese sensibilities. Some preferred one, some preferred the other. However, the relative nature of native versus Chinese aesthetics varied wildly depending on the field we're talking about. For example, in architecture, the Chinese style is one of tremendous opulence and grandeur designed to evoke the greatness of the civilization at the center of the world. The best example in Japan is Kinkakuji, the temple of the Golden Pavilion, which is sided with gold leaf. Japanese architecture is defined by a more subtle style centered around the acceptance of a certain degree of flawed understatedness as natural and beautiful. It's no less artificial than the Chinese style, but considerably less overstated. The confusingly named Ginkakuji, or Temple of the Silver Pavilion, which has no silver in its design, is a good example. If you're prone to making huge generalizations about art, as I am, a good reference point would be Enlightenment France versus England. Think of the incredible opulence of Versailles, compared to the more natural-seeming, but not actually natural, idea of the English garden. In painting, meanwhile, things are a bit more confused. One of the major schools of Japanese painting, the Kamo School, takes its style from the opulent and vibrant paintings which characterized early Japanese art, which in turn had its basis in Tang Dynasty painting. The other historic school, the Tosa School, had a more understated approach based on the more restrained paintings of later Chinese styles. In short, the history of Japanese aesthetics can be summed up as heavy Chinese influence with dueling strains of high opulence and understated elegance. One day I'd like to do something more specific on art history, but I'm limited on two fronts, by my own inadequate knowledge and by our medium. Pictures, after all, are worth a thousand words, and that's quite a bit of podcasting. Finally, some of you have asked me how long I plan to continue this podcast for. Well, there is, to be sure, only a finite amount of Japanese history out there, and presumably I'll run out of things I can talk about in an interesting way eventually. If for no other reason, then Japan will not continue to produce history faster than I can podcast it. However, I don't see that happening anytime soon, and even if it did, I'd probably want to start another series on a different topic. Maybe military history, or something broader on cross-cultural contact, I haven't really decided. So, in short, they're going to have to pry this internet connection and microphone from my cold, dead fingers. That's all for this week. Thank you all for your wonderful questions. I had a great time putting this together. For more on this week's episode, or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next week for an episode on Om Shinrikyo.